everyone. I'm Bobby Connor, and today I wanted to talk to you about temperature and temperature regulation. Uh, and I wanted to talk about it because it's something that I think is often overlooked when we are practicing clinical medicine, or not overlooked so much as uh, maybe we overlook the importance of temperature and what it can tell us about our patients. So I, I think as with many things, getting back to the basics can be really helpful in remembering why something is so important. So when I when we think about temperature, when we um, take a patient's temperature, we get a thermometer and we take their temperature, what is that telling us? Well, at its most basic level, that is telling us um, that this is the balance between heat production and heat loss in the patient in front of me. And we know that we are, um, as animals, we are producing heat through metabolism and activity all the time, and, and really large amounts of heat, actually, that we have to constantly get rid of this heat in most circumstances. And we use our metabolism to kind of figure out different physiologic mechanisms that will help us with um, both heat production and heat loss. One of the things that I, I often remember is, is going back uh, to, you know, pre-vet school you know, we learned about heat exchange and the different mechanisms for heat exchange in any circumstances. Uh, and so a reminder of what those things are, things like convection, uh, conduction, evaporation, radiation, uh, different types of heat exchange. And we as animals use all of these mechanisms for heat exchange in order to uh, get rid of all this heat that we produce in our bodies. And uh, we, can, we can recognize some of those things in our patients to tell us, you know, are they in a, in a heat saving mode? Or are they in, a, in a, you know, a situation where they're trying to get rid of all that excess heat? Um, and, and so, but remembering that that is ultimately what the temperature is telling us. Balance of heat production versus heat loss. Why do we end up at a certain temperature? Well, that um, ultimately comes down to the, the hypothalamic set point in the brain of that individual animal. And the normal set point for that animal is based on that species. So, you know, different species evolved to say this temperature is ideal for my set of circumstances. And so not all um, creatures, uh, certainly we're specifically talking about, um, you know, warm-blooded um, uh, animals here, that we have a set point and we say, this is where I would like my temperature to be and I'd like it to be there at all times. And then I'm going to be a little bit upset if it's not at that temperature and then there's going to be a reaction or, or a response. Uh, now, your body sometimes has to work pretty hard to maintain the temperature where it wants it, all in deference to what does the brain say it wants the temperature to be. So I find it helpful to think of the hypothalamic set point for the temperature to be very similar to a thermostat like we have in our homes. And if the thermostat is set at, if it's a person, 98.6 degrees or thereabouts, um, that the thermostat is said, okay, if it's 98.6 degrees, we're happy, we don't need to do anything. Uh, if it gets above 98.6 degrees, I need to kick the air conditioner on. I need that, so I need to cool down. And some of the things that might look like physiologically would be sweating or vasodilation. If you think about the last time you went for a run or did some sort of exercise and you were hot, you felt hot, you said, I'm feeling warm, but you you also do some of those physiologic things like sweating um, and turning red to get rid of excess heat in that regard. Uh, uh, you'll also get signals from your brain that, that alter your behavior and say, okay, you're getting warm. You should maybe 
chill out, slow down, maybe not work as hard or do other things to help you cool off, perhaps drink some cool water, um, maybe get into some shade. So you'll also um, have some behavioral modifications, things that you have conscious control over and you can decline to do those things. Um, And then again, the physiologic responses that you don't have control over. On the flip side, if you start to get cold because you're in a snowstorm in Minnesota in February and you forgot your gloves, your hands start to feel cold and your, your core temperature might actually start to drop if that becomes extreme enough. Uh, and again, you'll have both signals to your brain that say, hey, dummy, put on some gloves, um, you know, get to shelter, get inside, um, but also some physiologic responses, things like goosebumps and uh, is shivering as, as temperatures continue to drop. So um, your brain tries really hard to maintain your temperature in a very narrow range. I've always um, thought it was interesting that in people, we often talk about the normal temperature in people being 98.6. And we, we recognize that there is a little bit of variability, um, you know, 98.5, 98.9, even up to 99 might be fine. Um, but we have, that's a pretty narrow range. It's really a specific number that we often talk about for, for normal temperature in people. And yet for dogs and cats, routinely I hear the range of 99.5 to 102.5, which is a three-degree spread, which always sort of... It frankly bothered me. Why, why is there such a widespread in dogs and cats? Are they really that different than us? Um, and I don't, I don't actually think so. Uh, I think that most individual animals, whether it be a domestic dog or a cat, uh, that individual animal probably has a very uh, narrow normal temperature range, just like we do, probably keeps it to about a tenth of a degree uh, under most circumstances. However, our patients come into us under a number of different circumstances, different uh, sets of stressors that ultimately are, are fairly benign in a lot of cases. And so over the decades, we as a profession have learned to say, hey, let's not freak out about minor changes in temperature that might be from excitement due to coming for a car ride or sitting in the, the waiting room of a vet hospital. So we've, we've, I think, learned to accept a wider range of temperatures just so that we didn't kind of get overexcited about minor changes. But I think the more we know about an individual patient and what that patient's normals are, the more we can get in tune to subtle changes that might clue us into problems sooner rather than later. For example, if you have a patient that comes to your clinic regularly and every time it comes in, it, it you know you record a temperature, it's 100.7, it's 100.6, it's 100.5, it's 100.6 again, and then it comes in on a visit today and its temperature reads 101.9. Well, that's within the normal range, but I wonder if maybe that shouldn't be a bit of a red flag for you to say, well, he's always very consistently at this range, uh, and today he's up by a, by a degree. Uh, is that something that maybe I should pay attention to? And I would argue that we should. Should we panic? No, I don't think we should ever panic, but it's something that should pique our interest and, and we should potentially follow up on. Uh, and so I, I want to encourage you out there to think a little bit more about the temperature and what it could mean. Um, But again, always in context for what's happening in the body. It's not just a number we're going to treat. And so I want to talk a little bit about how thermoregulation happens in the body and and, and how we can use that and what an elevated temperature might mean, and then also what a, a reduced, a low temperature could mean. And so 
when we are thermoregulating, I alluded to some of these things already, there's some physiologic changes and some behavioral changes, and we can use those clues to kind of tell us what, what do we think is going on with our patient. So an elevated temperature in a dog or a cat could mean a number of things. And the first step that I like to address is, do I think this is exposure, hyperthermia, meaning just an elevated temperature, but do I think that is from exposure or exertion, or do I think that's truly a fever? Because fever and true uh, exertional or exposure hyperthermia are not the same thing. They both require an elevated temperature by definition, but a fever means a change in the hypothalamic set point. The thermostat has been altered, whether that is from an infection or some sort of inflammatory process. We've got inflammatory cytokines circulating the blood that send a signal to the brain that say, all right, we're going to crank up the thermostat. Um, and the interesting thing about that, if you recall a time when you had a fever, if you think about having a fever and remember, did I feel hot or did I feel cold? You'll probably remember feeling cold, which is a bit paradoxical. If you have a fever, you have an elevated temperature, shouldn't you feel warm? Just like when your temperature is elevated after exercise outside in August, uh, you might say, well, okay, why do I feel cold? Well, the feeling of hot or cold isn't just what is my temperature. It's what is my temperature compared to what my brain wants it to be. And so if you have a fever and your hypothalamic set point, your thermostat has been increased to say 104 degrees. That's now what your thermostat is set at. And your actual temperature is 103 degrees. You're going to feel cold just as if your, uh, your normal set point, uh, or you, you had your normal set point and your temperature had dropped by a degree. You're going to feel cold. You're going to shiver. You're going to want to wrap yourself in a blanket. And your, your patients are going to do the same thing. They're going to curl themselves up into a ball. They might be shivering. Uh, they're, they're going to be showing behaviors that are, are sort of heat-retaining or heat-seeking behaviors. And so we can, we can use that to remind us, okay, what is my patient doing? And what does that mean about the temperature that I am registering on the thermometer? So a patient comes in with a temperature of 104 degrees, uh, and, and that patient happens to be a dog, which is super helpful because they broadcast how they're feeling about their temperature uh, better than a lot of species. Uh, when dogs are overheated and they want to cool down, they pant. That is a, is a really effective method. Um, you know, they open their mouths, their tongues look like they've gotten bigger because they have, because they become engorged with blood. So more blood is flowing through that lingual artery. Uh, they drool, so you have water um, kind of pouring over the tongue, and then they pant to breathe air to increase evaporative losses. So you have radiant and evaporative heat losses um, increased, and it's a pretty effective method for heat loss in dogs. And so a dog that is panting is telling you I don't know what, I don't know what you, your brain wants your temperature to be, but it wants to be lower than it is right now. So if I measure a dog's temperature of 102.5 and he's panting, I know he wants to be lower than 102.5. If I measure his temperature at 104, he wants to be lower than 104. Again, I don't know necessarily where his normal is going to be, um, but I can say it's probably lower than it is. And if he's otherwise acting fine and doing fine, I might not be that excited about 104 in a dog that's bouncing around, uh, seeming really excited and panting. That same dog that is curled up in a ball, not panting and uh, looking, looking fairly sick. Again, the sick part is, is kind of a giveaway, but even sick animals can have elevated temperatures that, that is not a fever. Um, so I want to look at the behavior of that patient. And that's also going to inform how I address that temperature. So one of the first things, uh, one of our, our natural inclinations to registering a fever on the thermometer 
is to say, ah, I need to cool that off. Fever, bad, must cool off. And yet that's not what we do for ourselves when we have a fever. Again, thinking back to the last time you had the flu and and you had a fever, you felt cold. And so you wrapped yourself in blankets, you put on your warm socks, you drank some hot cocoa or tea or, or hot soup. You did things to help keep yourself warm because that's what your brain was telling you to do. Uh, you want to get more comfortable. You're trying to retain heat, and that is that is an advantageous thing to do. Um, so if your patient comes in with signs of a fever, elevated temperature and, and showing signs of a fever, the, the last thing I think you should do is to cool them off, um, mostly because it's incredibly rude. Uh, I, I think if I were in my house curled up on the couch watching old movies, feeling sorry for myself because I had a fever and somebody came in with a bucket of cold water, I'd be pretty upset if they dumped that on my head and they said, no, 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 this is for your own good. Um, rude is the, the first thing I think of, but also potentially counterproductive. I'm not going to win the battle with the brain. If the brain has decided the new thermostat set point is 103 degrees, dumping a bucket of cold water isn't going to convince the brain otherwise. It's potentially going to make me now work harder to get my temperature back up to that 103, 104 that I want it to be in the first place. So now I'm expending energy to counteract that bucket of cold water. And I think we potentially do the same thing to a lot of our patients when we focus solely on the number on the thermometer rather than looking at the circumstance in which I got this temperature reading. So when it comes to an elevated temperature measurement on the thermometer, think about what is the context? Do I think this is a true fever? And then I need to investigate what's causing that fever and address that. Or do I think this really is uh, exposure hyperthermia? I mean, clearly, if I have a patient with heat stroke, dog that has a history of, you know, exertion, was running around on a hot day, or maybe unfortunately locked in a car, yeah, that's a patient I need to cool off. The brain does not want the temperature to be 109 degrees. Uh, and, and so we need, to, we need to look at things in context. But just because 109 degrees is terrible in a patient with heat stroke, that doesn't mean 104 degrees in a, in a fever patient is as dangerous because it's it's not. And it's not something that I think we need to aggressively address with active cooling measures. I see the same behaviors happening on the other end of the spectrum in patients with hypothermia. So again, two sort of flavors the way I think about it um, with hypothermia. There's exposure hypothermia, meaning I have um, an excess of heat loss compared to my heat production. Um, so that would be a true exposure. Now, in, here in Florida, don't see a whole lot of that. Um, occasionally, you'll see, um, you know, animals, you know, get locked in, in cold rooms or something like that, especially if they're, they're wet. Um, but certainly up north um, in, in cooler climates, that can, that can be a real issue. But the majority of patients that I see coming in through emergency that have hypothermia have hypothermia from poor perfusion. So when there's not enough blood flow to go around, one of the first thing the body does is starts to prioritize. And it prioritizes by saying, skin, muscle, you're low on the list. And so we're going to vasoconstrict our blood vessels in the periphery. Um, so all the blood that's going to the skin and muscle, we're going to shunt that away to core organs like the heart and the brain. And so that's an advantageous thing because in order to keep me alive, I need to keep the brain and the heart happy. Skin and muscle can live without, without a little, or with reduced blood flow for quite some time. Um, and so that's a decision I'm going to make. But the result of that is my temperature is dropping because there's just not enough blood to go around to everybody. And so a low temperature in an emergency setting, the first thing I think of is poor perfusion. And if 
poor perfusion is the reason for my low temperature, then that's also what I need to correct. Correcting perfusion is going to correct the temperature, certainly much more efficiently, much more quickly, and it's going to fix the perfusion problem, which is my main issue, more so than the low temperature. So if a patient comes in and registers a, a temperature of 97 degrees, it's a cat that comes in, it's, it's looking in shock, and it's got 97 degrees reading on the, on the thermometer, Getting a, a bear hugger or some sort of active warming going is not my priority at all and potentially is counterproductive. Uh, I, don't, I don't know this for sure, um, but it makes physiologic sense in my mind that if I have a, 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 I've made the physiologic decision to vasoconstrict to the periphery, to shunt blood away from my skin and muscle, to maintain it to my heart and my brain, then I probably shouldn't counteract that actively. And there is the potential that if I'm aggressive with my active rewarming and I cause peripheral vasodilation because of all that heat that I'm giving, and that is a reaction that will happen, you can verify this for yourself by putting a, a warm uh, compress or something on your arm and then looking at what happens to the blood vessels here, that your skin will, will turn pink or red after putting some sort of warm compress on that for a period of time because of the local vasodilation. Well, all that means, vasodilation means blood flow going to that area. Uh, and in a patient in shock, that means blood flow that is not going to the brain and the heart. And until I've corrected the perfusion problem, that is not what I want to do. So patients that come in with hypothermia, my first thought is that's a perfusion problem, that's a patient in shock. Passive warming is fine. Put a blanket on them to prevent excessive heat loss. But I typically don't want to actively rewarm them unless I'm confident that this is an exposure hypothermia. Now, one of the most common causes um, of exposure hypothermia, or this is one way to look at it, you know, true temperature reduction is general anesthesia. Um, and, and anybody who's tried to rewarm a patient that got cold um, because of uh, anesthesia and a surgical procedure knows that it is really inefficient. It takes a long time in a lot of cases to warm those patients back up. That is not true of those patients in shock. Patients that are hypothermic from poor perfusion, if you fix the perfusion in a matter of minutes, you also fix the temperature in a matter of minutes. And so again, when we're thinking about what temperature can tell us in our patients, it tells us what do I think is going on, which is diagnostically really helpful, but also can help guide our treatment decisions to help keep our patients more comfortable and probably also help maximize the benefits they get from any treatment or resuscitative efforts that we give. And so that's really the crux of what I wanted to discuss today is just reminding people, um, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. We don't treat numbers, we treat the patients. The numbers do give us insight into our patients, however. And so we want to think about that in the context of the patient in front of us. And rather than blindly treating a number that's high or low by trying to alter that, is to think about what is going into the changes in the patient that led to those, those derangements in the temperature and try to get to the core of that, asking those, those physiologic questions. What do I think is going on? And I think if we do that, we'll, we'll do a lot better for our patients.